please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. As we continue to make our way through the Pentateuch, talking this morning about, continuing to talk about gospel foundations, seeing the gospel proclaimed even at the earliest writings in Scripture, and we see as, as God reveals his truths to us, we see these foundational truths to the gospel proclaimed on every page of, of Scripture. And we're looking here this morning at, at Genesis 11 as we talk about God's judgment and worship. And I encourage you to stand, if you're able to, as we read verses 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 11. Here's what we read. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we would ask you this morning that you would help us to to think rightly about you and your character and how it relates to who we are and who we're supposed to be. And we thank you for these words about your judgment and how we can still worship you. And Father, this morning our hearts are heavy as we think about the reality of living in a, a fallen world. We think about uh, Pastor Mike and, and his family and the loss of his mother, and we pray that we as a church would uh, envelop them in, in your love and your care, and we pray uh, for that family and uh, our hearts hurt. We know that there are other families this morning who are hurting, uh, people who are struggling with health issues, with a physical and emotional distress and, and spiritual longing. And uh, we would ask that you would be gracious to them this morning as well. We pray that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves this morning, our faith would be in your son, Jesus, and that we would respond in worship. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. When bad things happen... I think it's pretty common to wonder sometimes, are these bad things happening because of of something wrong that we've done? So we find ourselves in a bad situation, bad things are happening, we wonder, is this this God's hand of displeasure 
being displayed in my life. Whenever our daughter was about 13 days old, she had some serious health complications and had to go to the hospital for a couple weeks. And I can remember talking to one family member about the situation that she was in and we're on the phone and this family member said, they were struggling with guilt and they said, I I wonder if, if this is the consequence for sin in my life, if somehow this bad situation we find ourselves in, as this family member said, is, is, is my fault, is, is, is the fault of, of sin in my life. And they struggled with that. And I assured them I did not believe that to be the case. But I think that's, I think that's somewhat common for, for some people to feel, right? And sometimes the link between the bad situations we find ourselves in and sin is even more clear. So there's been some sort of sin in the past, and right now we find ourselves wrestling with the consequences of those sin. And so we wonder, okay, is is this God's judgment upon me, or is this some sort of direct discipline that I'm experiencing because of sin? And many years ago, I was talking with a couple who who ultimately decided to to pursue a, a divorce, and they were talking about things that were going on in their lives and said, okay, right now we're in this situation and we're in this marriage and it, it began in these circumstances and these things happened as we were dating and as we decided to get married and, and now we're experiencing the fruit of that in our lives and before that there were some bad financial decisions we made, some sinful financial decisions we made and now we're suffering because of those decisions and so they said, we feel very trapped right now. We're in we're suffering all the consequences of these sins in our previous decisions we've made, and, and it, we just feel overwhelmed by, by God's judgment, and we feel hopeless. And, and maybe some of you struggle with, with those types of feelings. Okay, right now I'm, I'm in some sort of circumstance, and I wonder, is this the fruit of sin that I'm, I'm dealing with? And, and if it is the fruit of sin, is there any hope for me in the midst of the situation because it was brought on by my own poor choices? Or maybe I'm just wondering if I'm suffering from other people's sins and the consequences of sin in their life. And if you've ever struggled with those thoughts or wondered about how to think rightly and biblically about that, I think this passage this morning will be very encouraging to you. Because in this passage, we're going to see some things about God's judgment. And, and this morning, I'm going to use uh, two terms, not very precisely, as I talk about God's judgment and God's discipline. God's judgment doesn't refer to what believers experience. We don't fall under God's condemnation. We do sometimes experience discipline. I'm not going to be very precise in distinguishing the two of those things this morning. Believers do suffer the consequences of judgment. As God exercised judgment, sometimes believers find themselves affected by those consequences. So, for example, we're talking about God's judgment on the nation or on on humanity here in Genesis 11, and all of us who are in this room experience some of the effects of what happens here in Genesis 11. And so, we're not immune from the effects of sin. But, but here's, here's the overarching thing I want us to consider and the, the message that I believe will be very helpful for all of us this morning, encouraging us as we think about God and his character and his judgment and how we respond in worship. Here's, here's the big thing that I want you to see. For the believer, even God's judgment and discipline result in our benefit and, and his exaltation. Or as we so often say, our good and his glory. 
even God's expressions of displeasure and and judgment or his times of discipline, even those circumstances are for our benefit and his glory. I believe those are very encouraging truths. And what I want us to do is kind of walk through this story. I want us to look at what humanity chooses to do. I want to look at how God responds to what humanity chooses to do. And then I want us to look at some things that I think are going to encourage us as we think about judgment and discipline and worship and those types of things. And, and maybe this morning sin has brought you to a place of hopelessness and you're feeling the consequences of sin and relationship, life circumstances. You wonder, is it, is it, have I gotten so far off track that there's no hope? I believe that this passage will be very, very encouraging for you as you think about God and his relationship to you because for the believer, all of God's actions, even those of judgment and discipline, are for our benefit and his exaltation. So let's, let's look here first at what humanity chooses to do. We're here in verses 1 through 4. Now, let me give you a little bit of the context. Remember, as we've been going through Genesis, we've been seeing some genealogies, and we looked at Cain's genealogy, and now here in Genesis 10, we see the, the genealogy of, of Seth, and specifically Noah and his three sons, and it talks about Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in Genesis 11, we're going to talk about the creation of languages and cultures, but Genesis 11 comes before some of the events in Genesis chapter 10, and so you, you see the languages, clans, nations mentioned in Genesis 10, and Genesis 11 is kind of backtracking on what happens in Genesis 10. There's also, as you come to Genesis 10, the mention of this guy named Nimrod, and Nimrod was not an insult like it might be uh, today, but Nimrod is this mighty hunter, this person who's powerful, and he's the one who founds the city of Babel mentioned in Genesis 11. Genesis 12, as we come to Genesis 12, is going to be a, a, a narrowing of the focus. So Genesis, up until Genesis 11, you see all these nations. And then in Genesis 12, God's salvific plan is going to be brought about through, through one person and, and his lineage. And we'll talk about that as we come to Genesis 12. But here we are in Genesis 11. And as we look at Genesis 11, remember what God's command was. What did he tell Adam to do? He told Adam... To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. He told Noah to be fruitful, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply it. And here, as we come to Genesis 1 and 2, look at what we read. It says, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And so there's some unity to humanity here. And, verse 2 says, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And he's talking about a region in modern-day Iraq, probably south of of Baghdad, and they they settle down there. And so they're not fulfilling God's command, right, to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the whole earth. And what else do we read here? It says that humanity speaks to one another. Verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and talks about how they did that. And then verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top in the heavens. And that on its face doesn't necessarily seem wrong, right? I mean, what's wrong with building a city? What's wrong with building a tower? Well, what's wrong is the motivation, because we see that their motivation is motivation built by some sinful desires. It says, let's build this city, this is verse 4, and a tower, and 
let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so they're motivated by disobedience. Let's build this tower to make a name for ourselves. We want to be exalted. And let's build this city to keep us from being dispersed. The city is there for security. Uh, The tower is there for prominence, for significance. And oftentimes in scriptures, we see people constructing mighty cities and mighty towers. We see that it's motivated by sinful desires to exalt themselves. And we see this Uh, For example, in Isaiah 25, it says that God destroys these arrogant city structures. Ezekiel 26, God says he's going to destroy Nebuchadnezzar's mighty towers that reach into heavens. It's another sign of of arrogance. And so what's happening here? here? What's happening here? Here, what humanity has decided to do is to build a city and to build a tower. And why humanity has decided to do that is because they want security And they want self-exaltation. And they want to do those things at the expense of obedience to God. Their desire for security and their desire for self-exaltation is directly at odds with God's plan for them. Now, you put yourself in, in their situation, right? And you're some hundred years or so after a worldwide flood that destroys most of humanity. And you're this small band of humanity. And you can understand the fear that they might have, right? A fear about their own security. And fear about their own significance in the place of a, a very vast world. Early uh, Tuesday morning, Whitney and I were in the car. We were uh, driving to, to Chicago. We were, gonna, um, we were thinking about uh, Pastor Mike and, and the situation with his mom. And there, as we, as we drive, even, even, even in the world as we know it, we know so much about the world and there's, there's highways and everything. But even there, just kind of driving on this country road, we, we look up and we see the, the vastness of the stars. And we're thinking about how how huge the universe is and how, how small we are in comparison to the vastness of the universe and really how fragile life is. And here you have humanity recognizing how fragile they are and how insignificant they are and their desire for significance and their desire for security sets them at odds with God's plan for them and they make some sinful decisions because they would rather have significance and security than be in obedience to God. The construction of the tower is to exalt themselves. The construction of the city is to create security. And we're no different today, right? We're no different today. I was reading a, an article in The Economist. It's from the, the May uh, 2015 edition of, of The Economist. And it was talking about this, this theory by a, a man named Andrew Lawrence called the skyscraper curse. And this guy kind of tracked all the constructions of skyscrapers and especially the construction of the world's tallest structures and showed how the construction of these tallest structures was linked pretty directly to times of financial crisis. And so you have the construction of these uh, tall buildings in 1907, 1909, and that's right around the time of some financial crisis. You have the Empire State Building kind of in the time of the Great Depression. The uh, Malaysia built two great 
skyscrapers in 1996 as the Asian uh, economy collapsed. And we uh, think even of uh, more recent, the, the 2010 construction of uh, the world's tallest building in Dubai. And you have th- these links between the construction of these skyscrapers or tall buildings, the time of financial collapse. And this guy theorizes that perhaps perhaps what's being represented here is kind of some hubris, some arrogance, is you're living in a time of excess capital. And as you have this excess, excess capital, you think, I'm just going to build these, these big structures. And soon everything comes collapsing down around you, right? But we all do this. We all do this. We all struggle, we all struggle with this temptation to create security and prominence at the expense of obedience. It constantly confronts us. A desire to exalt ourselves, to create security or to create prominence at the expense of being obedient to God. So, for example, you're in the workplace, and you know what the ethical boundaries of, of work are. But you recognize if, if you just cut a, a few corners, if you just did a couple things that not, maybe they're not even necessarily wrong, but they, they violate what, the way that you believe that you should operate in the workplace. And, and if you just do a, a couple of those things, maybe, maybe you recognize that God has placed you in a situation to be an ambassador for him. If you just kind of back off that responsibility a little bit, you can, you can have greater prominence in the workplace. Or, or maybe you can have security in the workplace. And there's this tension between being obedient to God and creating significance and security. Or maybe you say, you know what, I recognize that I have these these obligations that God has placed on me for time with my family or things that I need to be doing in shepherding my children or involvement in the church. And yet you say, boy, if, if, I, if I just kind of go off that balance a little bit, if I don't do exactly what God has told me to do, but instead I just spend some more time here in the workplace, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more beyond what God has called me to do, then I can have some security. I can have some financial security that will protect me against an uncertain world. Or I can have some prominence, a, a promotion, some sort of recognition in the eyes of other people that I am something significant, that I'm not just some speck in the universe. Or maybe it's in school, you know, you think, boy, if I, instead of being an ambassador for Christ in the school, if I just spend, a, if I just kind of compromise a few of my morals, if I just do a couple of things here, if I refuse to say a couple of things that I know God would want me to say, then I can have some, some social standing, some security in my place in school or with my friends. Brothers and sisters, the temptation to sacrifice Obedience to God for security and significance confronts us constantly, right? It's a constant temptation. We don't want to be insignificant. We don't want to be insecure. And so we're willing to disobey God to create security, to arrive at significance outside of his definition for those things, right? That's what humanity chooses. But here's some good news. The good news is that God's plan for you is going to attack your plans for self-exaltation. It's inevitable. What's your tower? 
What's the edifice that you're constructing? They say, boy, once, once I get this thing constructed, then I will have arrived. Whatever it is, here's the good news for those of you who are believers. God is not going to let that edifice stand. God in his graciousness is not going to allow your structure designed for your self-worship to last. He's going to deal with it. And that is not a sign of his displeasure or his his hatred of you, rather. But it's a sign of his love and his graciousness. God is gracious. He will not allow your edifice to stand. He's going to deal with it. Here's how God responds in verses 5 through 9. It says, verse 5, he, the Lord came down to see the city. And, and I hope you see kind of the, the humor in that expression there. Uh, the humanity has talked about how they're going to build this, this, this tower and we're going to build this city and we're going to reach the heavens. And there's this, this hubris, this arrogance, this, this rather foolish pride. And as they, they build this tower and they're, they're exerting all their efforts to build this tower, the text tells us that, that God has to come down. What's going on down there, guys? Oh, a tower. That's cute. Even this, this attempt at, at, at reaching God, Moses is using some what we call anthropomorphic language, some, some human language to describe God. Of course, God is everywhere. He knows everything. He's omniscient, all-knowing. All and, and yet, he has, he, he, Moses says, it's, it's like he comes down to, hey, what's going on, guys? He says he, he comes down to look at what's going on. It reminds me of what we read in Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the mightiest people of the earth kind of gather together and say, How can we rebel against God? And how does God respond? It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his holy wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in his way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God is God. God. We are humanity. And he says, look, the, the right response is to, to worship him, to recognize his otherness and as the nations gather together, God, God laughs. It's, it's foolishness to, to rebel against him. And listen to the conclusion that, that God reaches here in Genesis chapter 11. As he looks down in verse 6, even though the, the situation is, is somewhat humorous in verse 5, Verse 6 tells us that it's off also horrific. God understands that the seriousness of what's being proposed here. The Lord said, Behold, there are one people, so there's unity among them. They all have one language, and so there's this ability to, to unite together in their unified purpose of rebellion against him. He says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And remember, in, at the end of Genesis 8, the Lord looks at humanity and says, the, the intention of their hearts is on evil what? 
evil continually. And as God sees humanity united in this, this purpose to rebel against him, he says there's, there's nothing that they won't be able to do. There's no pursuit of evil that they will not be able to pursue. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And he's obviously not talking about, boy, I'm in trouble now because humanity will revolt against me and I won't be able to, to do anything. No, he's talking here about in his, his graciousness, recognizing that humanity is going to not have the restraints upon them to prevent them from doing all the evil that they propose to do. That's the conclusion that he reaches. And so what action does he take? Verse 7 tells us. Again, there's this language used to describe God in a, in a human way. Verse 7, come, let us go down. And they're confused their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord dispersed them, verse 8, from there and over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. And so God intervenes some divine way. We don't know exactly how he does this. He causes these different languages to exist, and there's confusion. People are not able to understand one another, and then he disperses them. And we don't know if he, if he uh, sovereignly, physically moves them, or if uh, through his, his uh, act of judgment here, they decide to move themselves. But still, it's his hand that causes them to move. And in verse Nine kind of gives us this summation. Therefore, its name was called Babel or Babel, which means confusion. It says, because it's there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And so there's a global scope to it. And it says, from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, as we look at how God responds here, there's so much we could say, but, but here's what I hope you see. There's some real irony in what God does. By irony, I mean what happens is contrary to the expected result, right? So just look at a couple of ironic things that happen here. God's judgment here is leading them exactly to the places they don't want to go. First of all, we see it's irony that as humanity pursues the heavens, God has to look down to see what they're doing. We talked about that already. It's like... Whenever you're, you're wrestling with your kids, our, our kids and I would, would wrestle, um, my kids love talking smack, right? I mean, they love talking, Dad, you know, I'm going to take you down, and you can't get me. And, and, you know, they're saying that while you're, like, holding them with your thumb or something. And, you know, Dad, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess you up. It's, it's, it, but it's funny, right? It's funny because it, we're both in on the joke. We, we both know that I'm bigger, okay, for now, which is nice. But it's funny. It's, it's all part of the game. We're both in on the joke. Here, the irony is that humanity really is suffering under the delusion that, that they can somehow reach God. We're going to exalt ourselves. We're going to reach the heavens. And the irony is that as they, as they pursue the heavens, God has to look down to see what's going on. Here's another irony. As you look at this. Humanity's pursuit of unity actually leads to them being scattered. This, this desire to, to unify and to, to, to not be scattered. Say, so look, we're afraid about being dispersed. Their decision to kind of come together and create this city actually is the reason that they get dispersed. There's irony there. There's also irony in that humanity's pursuit of a name, let's make a name for ourselves, humanity's pursuit of a name actually leads to them being shamed. Think of what James writes in James chapter 4. 
God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. This is James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and and he will exalt you. There's irony there, right? The the humble are the ones who are exalted, that the proud are the ones who are destroyed. So there's irony. There's just irony all through these, these nine verses. You try to reach up and God has to look down to see you. You, you try to stay unified and your, your pursuit of unity leads to you being scattered. You try to pursue this name for yourself and the pursuit of a name leads to, to shame. Now remember what I said is the, the main thing that I want you to grasp this morning. I said even God's judgment and discipline are for our benefit and his glory. Even God's judgment, for the believer, even God's judgments and disciplines are, are for our benefit and, and his exaltation. Now, now here's, here's what we see with all these ironies. All these ironies lead to, to one big irony. One big irony. The biggest irony of this, this whole thing, as we look at this, this story, is that through God's judgment, through God's judgment, unified humanities greatest attempt to worship themselves brings about scattered, fractured humanity's greatest opportunity to worship God. Let me say that again. Because of judgment, unified humanity's greatest attempt to worship themselves, to exalt themselves, becomes divided, scattered humanity's greatest opportunity to worship God. It's this amazing thing that happens because of God's judgment. God's judgment here creates languages and nations and cultures. By God's divine hand of judgment here, cultures and languages and nations and tribes and people groups are created. And as these tribes and, and culture groups and all these, this, this fractured humanity is created, we see that through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, becomes this opportunity for humanity to become united in their diversity, in the person of Jesus Christ, to worship God. And this, this is an amazing thing. This is an amazing thing. The diversity of worship in, to, to one God creates an exaltation of God that could not exist otherwise. Remember a, Many years ago, I, I read for the first time a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. I've, I've mentioned it before, but there's this kind of question that's asked, and I, I won't word it as eloquently as John Piper does, but the, the question is essentially this. Is God concerned just with a whole bunch of people worshiping him? Or does God desire, is one of God's goals, diversity of worship? So option A, does he just want a whole bunch of people, numerically, a whole, a whole big number of people to worship him, and because you have a big number, there's going to be diversity in it? Or is one of God's pursuits diversity in worship? He doesn't want just a large number of people. He wants a large number of different types of people worshiping him. And Piper argues from the scripture very convincingly that it's the second option. God doesn't want just a large number of people. God wants diversity of people worship him. Let's, let me give you some examples. King Solomon in 1 Kings 8, he's praying this, this prayer of dedication for the temple, and 
He talks about the foreigner. He says, God, when the foreigner who's not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for thy, for thy name's sake, and he says, people are going to hear of you. He says, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to thee in order that all the peoples of the earth may know thy name to fear thee as do thy people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. It says, when they hear of the deeds that you've done here, they, they come here, let, let people, the, the foreigner, people from other nations know you. The psalmist talks about the need for nations or peoples to hear the word of the Lord and respond in worship. Declare among the peoples his deeds, says Psalm 911. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy, Psalm 47.1 says. Praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples, the psalmist says in Psalm 117, verse 1. Zechariah 14.16 talks about a time when God's future judgment is going to take place and and even God's future judgment is going to result in people's coming together to worship him. In Zechariah fourteen sixteen it says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King and the Lord of hosts. Uh, Psalm 102.22 talks about this time in the future of, of corporate worship of, of God taking place among different peoples of tongues and, and nationalities. It says the peoples are gathered together, the, the, all the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Again, that's Psalm 102 verse 22. Here, here's what we see. There's a time, not just when a bunch of people will worship God, but a bunch of different types of people worship him. The Great Commission doesn't tell us just to reach a bunch of people. It talks about all the nations. Matthew 24, 14, the gospel to, of, the, of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world, to all the nations. In Revelation 5, 9, listen, to, listen very carefully to Revelation 5, 9. This is so important to grasp. It says they, they sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seal. They're talking to Jesus here, the lamb. And listen to what they say that Jesus did. Because you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Isn't that amazing? Part of the redemptive focus of Jesus's death was so that people groups could be united in worship of God. He didn't just die on the cross to bring us as individuals into worship of God. He brought us to bring unity among people groups. God's judgment on man's sin here leads to the maximization of our ability to worship him as we find our unity only in the gospel and it maximizes his glory as he is exalted by people from different tongues and, and nations, cultures. You know, we encourage, we encourage people to, you know, sometimes we, we sing some songs in, in Spanish, and, and, and I, th I think one of the reasons we do that is it helps us grasp this reality that, that God is not just saving people from one language, but people from, from many different languages. We would sing in, in more languages if we had any chance of getting those languages right. <laughs> We do well with Spanish, but it's a stretch. All this, all this leads me to this conclusion. Even God's judgment and his discipline 
are for our benefit, for his glory. Even this judgment on humanity here in Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9 leads to, leads to God's glory. This, this act, this greatest act in the history of humanity is humanity was united in a way that it had never been before, that has never been since. Even as humanity at this moment in time is united in this self-exaltation, self-worship, even at that moment, God uses it through judgment to bring out the opportunity for the greatest worship of God. Here's, here's some encouraging truths, some things that I hope encourage you this morning, some encouraging truths about God's judgment, his discipline for those of us who are believers and, and worship. Here's the first truth. Number one, I, I can't obey God and worship myself. I can't obey God and exalt and worship myself. Not only is it not logically possible, it's also not theologically possible. God in his graciousness is not going to allow me to suffer under the delusion that I can, can worship him and worship myself. God is going to sovereignly, providentially place me in circumstances where I must come to the conclusion I can't worship God, I can't obey God and worship myself. It's simply not possible. God will not let me value myself more highly than him. In fact, as we come to the end of the story of, of Babylon, you know, Babel becomes the, the beginning of the Babylonian empire, an empire that is dedicated to the, to the opposition of God and everything that he stands for. We come to the end of Babylon in Revelation 18, and I would encourage you to read all of Revelation 18 at some point this week if you have the opportunity to do so, because its fall is very instructive for us. It talks here about Babylon. It says, All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the, of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And, and then it talks about her fall and her destruction. And, and how do you think humanity responds whenever Babylon falls? When this place where immorality and materialism are rampant, how does humanity respond? Well, those who are, who are not of the Lamb, those who are not children of God and part of his redeemed, weep and they mourn. They, it says, verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. I can't obey God and worship myself. And how my heart responds when God deals with the things of this world that are full of immorality and materialism and luxuriousness, the way that my heart responds to that reveals what I truly worship, who I truly worship. God will not allow me to try to obey him and worship myself. That's an encouraging truth to me. A second encouraging truth to me is that God's discipline is, is not capricious. It's not capricious. As I find myself either personally experiencing the consequences of sin or suffering from other people's, other people's sin, I know that what God is doing is not just haphazard. It's haphazard. It's, it's not some whim of God. 
Hebrews 12, <clears throat> Hebrews 12, God, through the writer of Hebrews, says, look, in, in your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He, he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. And discipline could be finding ourselves in, in circumstances to make us stronger or finding ourselves being, being sanctified by God's loving hand. Whatever the case, as we see ourselves in various situations, we say, hey, this is, this is a sign of, of God's love for me. God's discipline, his judgment is not capricious. It's not whimsical. This is, this is God's sovereign plan. In fact, that'd be the third third encouraging truth that I would share with you. I'm never outside of God's sovereign plan for my life, am I? I'm never outside of God's sovereign plan for my life. Even when I find myself suffering, even when I find myself suffering for my past sin, for the the sins of others that I love, as I find myself in the midst of those difficult circumstances, the temptation can be to say, I'm I'm trapped, I'm I'm suffering, and God's hand of of displeasure is against me so firmly, there's there's no hope of a way out. But what what I say is, in every circumstance, I understand this is God's sovereign plan for my life. I have not slipped through his fingers. I'm not somehow finding myself outside of his will forever no hope of rescue. No, I say, this is part of God's sovereign plan. God in his sovereignty, through humanity's greatest pursuit of self-exaltation, God as he dealt with it, provided the opportunity for humanity in his sovereignty to worship him as they never could have otherwise. And then a final truth that I think is just encouraging, related to all that, because I'm always in God's sovereign plan, I'm always, I'm always, I'm always, I'm always in a place where I can worship him. I'm always in a place that I can worship him. When I suffer through the difficulties of just living in a fallen world, the first act of God's discipline and judgment on humanity for sin, living in a world where death reigns, when I find myself in a situation where the health of myself or other people is not what I would want when I find myself the the victim of injustice, when I find myself the victim of my own sin, no matter where I am, I can always respond in worship as I believe this, this marvelous truth that all that God does is for my good and his glory. Now, I said at the very beginning that this, this is true for believers, for all those who, who aren't under God's condemnation because Christ has borne our condemnation for us. And I encourage every person here, if you've never done so, to, to place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Here, as we see God's judgment brought about on a people, we see that through Christ, this, this, this act of judgment becomes a means for God to be exalted through faith in Christ. As Christ unites Jew and Greek, all Gentiles, in worship of him. Let's pray. And Father, we do ask today that we would worship you rightly. That you would allow us, as you provide, these, uh, provide us with these opportunities, help us to respond in worship and exaltation of your name. Help us to trust in you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.